0: Chapter 14. The Zenith and Decline of Optimism The 19th century saw the widest development of the victorious view of the kingdom that we have described. This was especially true in the United States. As we shall see in this chapter, however, that dominance evaporated rather rapidly toward the end of the century, and even more rapidly in the early decades of the present century. The Century of Triumphalism By the early 19th century, the idea that the kingdom of God would be victorious on earth and in history had penetrated much of American Protestantism, permeating all the major denominations, whether Congregationalist, Baptist, Presbyterian, Anglican, or Reformed. This emphasis continued to dominate American Christianity into the later decades of the century. As one historian has put it, During the first three quarters of the 19th century, this view was what one clergyman called in 1859 the commonly received doctrine among American Protestants. Historian Timothy L. Smith concludes from a detailed study of mid-19th century revivals that preachers of all persuasions turned to the belief that their mission was to prepare the world for Christ's coming by reducing it to the lordship of his gospel. Smith adds that the most significant millennial views of the mid-19th century grew out of Protestantism's crusade to Christianize the land. 19th century American Christians recognized that this was the dominant view throughout the country. Samuel Harris, a theology professor at Yale, noted in 1870 that "...the sublime idea of the conversion of the world to Christ has become so common as to cease to awaken wonder." Just as the Great Awakening had fueled eschatological hopes a century earlier, so the Second Great Awakening, beginning in the 1790s, renewed the future vision of American Christians. In 1819, the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church described the state of religion in glowing terms. We have the happiness to live in a day, brethren, when the captain of our salvation, in a distinguishing manner, is marshalling his mighty host and preparing for the moral conquest of the world. The grand conquest that has been so long conducted is drawing rapidly towards a termination that shall be infinitely honorable both to our glorious leader and to those who have fought under his banner. Not a finger shall be lifted, nor shall a devout aspiration heave the bosom of a single son or daughter of man to contribute to the advancement or plead for the glory of the kingdom of the Messiah that shall not be met with the smiles and crowned with the blessing of God. A similar note was sounded by the bishops of the Episcopal Church. The advancement of our holy religion will probably continue, as it has been heretofore, gradual but sure. Ages may roll away, and empires may rise and fall, before there shall come the promised era, when all the kingdoms of this world shall be the kingdoms of the Lord and his Christ. But as we rest our expectations of that event on the rock of his never-failing promise, we have reason to rejoice in whatever promotes the accomplishment of it, by extending the profession of Christianity over the immeasurable. Wilds of this immense continent. This view was voiced by figures across the spectrum of American Christianity. The revivalist Edward Beecher believed that the churches were aroused as never before, and he expected a glorious advent of the kingdom of God. The anti revivalist theologian and historian Philip Schaff told a Berlin audience that the growing hold of Protestantism upon the American people made Christ's triumph sure. Their missions, he said, both to the uncivilized and the nominal Christians of the Old World, and their colonization of Christianized slaves in Africa, were hastening the day when the whole earth would be filled with his glory and all nations walk in the light of eternal truth and love. This view of the kingdom was adopted by many of the leading 19th century theologians in the United States, especially those in Reformed seminaries. Princeton's Charles Hodge, 1797-1878, wrote, that before the second coming of Christ, there is to be a time of great and long-continued prosperity. Hodge referred to one theory that claimed that this period would last 365,000 years, but he remained cautious. During this period, be it longer or shorter, the Church is to enjoy a season of peace, purity, and blessedness, as it has never yet experienced. Hodge claimed that the prophets predict a glorious state of the Church prior to the Second Advent, because they represent the Church as being thus prosperous and glorious on earth. The great Southern theologian Robert L. Dabney, 1820-1898, concurred with Hodge's views. Before the Second Coming, Dabney taught, the Church would preach the gospel to all nations and would see the general triumph of Christianity over all false religions in all nations. Benjamin Breckinridge Warfield 1851-1921, to the last great conservative theologian of Princeton, echoed the same themes of victory. Commenting on Revelation 19, he wrote, The section opens with a vision of the victory of the world of God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, over his enemies. We see him come forth from heaven girt for war, followed by the armies of heaven. What we have here, in effect, is a picture of the whole period between the first and second advents, seen from the point of view of heaven. It is the period of advancing victory of the Son of God over the world. Even as the fundamentalist controversy hit its peak in the 1920s, the postmillennial vision was not entirely lost. Gary North writes that J. Gresham Machin, the founder of Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, was a postmillennialist, though, There is no sign in any of his writings that he relied heavily on postmillennialism as a motivating concept in his battle against the modernists. Thus, through most of the 19th century and into the 20th, American Christians, including pastors, evangelists, theologians, and laymen, expected the Church to advance and increase throughout history. They expected the Church of Jesus Christ to be victorious over all its enemies. The Effects of Optimism The hope of world conquest spurred missionaries to redouble their efforts. Revivals in Britain had stimulated the missionary enterprise. While British missionaries still outdistanced their American counterparts, American missionaries stimulated by revivals played an increasingly important role in the extension of Christianity. Yet, there had been a shift in emphasis since the Great Awakening— Edwards and his followers had placed primary emphasis on the renovation of the world through the preaching of the gospel and the conversion of great multitudes. By contrast, later preachers renewed the old Puritan teaching that social reform was an essential part of the advancement of the kingdom. Charles Finney, for example, demanded that some kind of relevant social action follow the sinner's conversion. As a result, his revivals were a powerful force in the rising anti-slavery impulse and in the rise of urban evangelism. Similarly, Edward Beecher said that the mission of the church was not merely to preach the gospel to every creature, but to reorganize human society in accordance with the law of God, to abolish all corruptions in religion and all abuses in the social system, and, so far as it has been erected on false principles, to take down and erect it anew. Timothy L. Smith quotes Dutch Reformed pastor Joseph Berg's hope, that with the termination of injustice and oppression, of cruelty and deceit, with the establishment of righteousness in every statute book and in every provision of human legislation and human jurisprudence, with art and science sanctified by the truth of God and holiness to the Lord graven upon the walls of our high places and the whole earth drinking in the rain of righteousness, this world would be renovated by the power of holiness. Oh, this is the reign of Jesus. Samuel Harris said that the kingdom of God is the life which creates the organization, penetrates and purifies also the family and the state, renovates individuals and blooms and fructifies in Christian civilizations, and these also are its historical manifestations. As Handy writes, Harris spoke with great confidence of the triumph of the kingdom and the full Christianization of civilization. The agents of this Christianization were largely the voluntary societies that proliferated during the 19th century. With the churches disestablished in nearly every state by the first decades of the 19th century, Christians had to find non state resources to fund their programs. Local in their origins, these voluntary societies gradually grew to national proportions, and then their efforts were coordinated in a national strategy. Activities ranged from Bible distribution to education to social reform, such as the temperance, peace, and abolition campaigns. Winthrop S. Hudson says that the statistics tell an incredible story of Bibles shipped, tracts distributed, Sunday schools organized, and churches established, not to mention the impact of the various more politically oriented movements. Through these agencies, evangelical Protestants largely succeeded in establishing a righteous empire. There were other factors in the rise of the voluntary associations, but certainly a victorious view of the kingdom was an important element. The Eclipse of Optimism So what happened? If this was the commonly received doctrine into the late 19th century, if it was partly responsible for the large-scale social efforts of 19th century evangelicals, why is it considered a relic by most 20th century Christians? Was there a dramatic new insight into scripture? Was there additional revelation at the beginning of this century? None of these. Several social and theological developments contribute to the decline of a victorious view of the future of the church. The causes of this decline of optimism are worthy of reflection. Christians are supposed to live by faith, not by sight. Yet 20th century Christians argue almost invariably that optimism cannot be sustained in the light of the horrors of the 20th century. We agree that this has been a bloody century, the bloodiest in human history, but we also believe that the Bible teaches that the gospel will eventually triumph. If the Bible teaches this, we should not allow our faith to be undermined by cultural trends. In examining the reasons for the decline of post-millennialism, we should note first that the doctrine of the kingdom that we have outlined was already on shaky ground when the 19th century began. In particular, the theology of the kingdom had been separated from the sacramental and teaching ministry of the church. Wave after wave of revivals had also weakened the church's theological and its governmental structure. Revivalism emphasized individual decision and personal piety, and tended to minimize the importance of social structures and practices. Already in the First Great Awakening, numerous schisms occurred, fracturing the church and preventing it from playing a central part in American society. As the church's authority declined, and as revivalistic individualism grew, the authority of the states increased. Historian Richard Bushman concluded from a study of the Great Awakening in Connecticut that, The civil authority was the sole institution-binding society by the 1760s. The state was the symbol of social coherence, as once the established churches had been. Group solidarity depended on loyalty to the government. United action in the French and Indian Wars of 1745 and 1756 restored a society rent with religious schisms. Patriotism helped to heal ecclesiastical wounds. The voluntary societies filled the social gap left by the decline of the churches, but they were simply not equipped to play the role that God had ordained for the church. The decline in the authority and social role of the church thus provided an opening for the rise of a nationalistic understanding of the kingdom. In other words, with the churches in decline, the American nation became for many the chief instrument for the advancement of the kingdom of Christ. Jonathan Edwards had suggested that the millennium might begin in America. But Edwards meant that American churches would be the hub of world evangelism. Later revivalists, during the American Revolution and afterwards, believed that the nation itself was the center of the kingdom's advance. One observer believed that the growth of America showed the unhastening yet unresting progress of a kingdom ordained ere time began to be completed when time shall be no more. Josiah Strong wrote in 1885 that the United States was divinely commissioned to be, in a peculiar sense, his brother's keeper. The distinction between the kingdom of God and the American nation was being blurred. When the nation's flaws became more evident in the early part of this century, people lost confidence not only in America, but in Christ's kingdom. Some identified American culture with Christianity so closely that they became willing or unable to criticize prophetically the society. The churches had also been wreaked by what historian Anne Douglas calls the feminization of American culture. When the churches were disestablished, they began to adopt commercial techniques and modes of operation. They had been forced into competition with one another and employed methods that would appeal to a wider audience. Because women were the most numerous churchgoers, the clergymen naturally appealed to feminine themes. Thus, from the early 19th century, the churches of America witnessed a declining emphasis on theology and doctrine, a rising influence of women in the church, and a general sentimentalization of literature, theology, church life, and culture. One aspect of 19th century sentimental culture is especially significant for our purposes, what Douglas labels the escape from history. It was not that 19th century clergymen and readers disliked history, they read avidly, but they did not read about the great movements and wars of history. Instead, the history they read was concerned with domestic and private life. This reflected a change in the church's posture towards the culture. In the midst of the supercharged revivalist social agenda of the 19th century, parish clergymen and regular churches had, psychologically at least, retreated from the larger cultural issues of the day into a sentimental world of domesticity. The faith of the regular clergy was an almost completely privatized faith. As the eschatology of American Christians was gradually nationalized and sentimentalized, it was also secularized. Revivalism emphasized technique. Charles Finney said that a revival was simply the result of the right use of the constituted means. Finney used various means to bring the sinner to the moment he thinks he is willing to do anything. As more and more emphasis was placed on the techniques that would hasten the kingdom, the earlier emphasis on the supernatural grace of God was replaced by an emphasis on manipulation and the natural process of moral improvement. It was only a short step from revivalistic optimism to the liberal view that the kingdom was entirely dependent upon human activity. The building of the kingdom of God had become as much a matter of technique and program as it was of conversion and religious piety. This shift reached its zenith in the social gospel movement. The social gospel maintained the optimism of the 19th century evangelicals, but eventually destroyed its supernatural foundations. This secular, anti-supernatural emphasis also appeared in the development, first in Europe, of higher critical methods of biblical study. This new scholarship attacked scriptural optimism, which always relied on faith in the text of scripture as its very roots. The reaction of conservative Christians to the secularism of the social gospel movement was a retreat from social and political action. Historian George Marston has described this retreat as the Great Reversal. Evangelical Christians, who had in a sense dominated the national culture of 19th century America, bowed out of the political arena. Marston describes several reasons for this reversal, but concludes that, The factor crucial to understanding the Great Reversal, and especially in explaining its timing and exact shape, is the fundamentalist reaction to the liberal social gospel after 1900. Until about 1920, the rise of the social gospel and the decline of revivalist social concerns correlate very closely by the time of world war one social christianity was becoming thoroughly identified with liberalism and was viewed with great suspicion by many conservative evangelicals because the social gospel was also identified with an optimistic view of the kingdom this too began to seem liberal to many orthodox christians theological changes on the american scene also contributed to the decline of a confidence in earthly victory for the church One of these was the rise of dispensational premillennialism. As Marston notes, the first stage of the Great Reversal was marked by a change from postmillennial to premillennial views of the relation of the kingdom to the present social and political order. By 1875, dispensationalisms, first articulated by the English theologian John Darby, began to gain ground in the United States. Social changes contributed to the decline of confidence in Christ's earthly victory. Industrialization and modernization created social dislocations. People used to rural life moved to the city, where life moved faster and morality was looser. Moreover, the savagery of the late 19th and early 20th century led many to adopt a more pessimistic view of the future. The Civil War, the First World War, the Revolution in Russia, all these contributed to a changing mood. Evangelicals did not retreat all at once. In fact, as Marston shows, premillennial evangelicals were very active in the period after World War I. Yet each subsequent tragedy forced evangelicals further and further into the protective walls of their own communities and of a private faith. Each tragedy reminded Americans of man's sinful nature. Thus, each of these setbacks contributed to a climate of pessimism. Finally, a major blow to the credibility of fundamentalism came with the Scopes trial of 1925. In the wake of this fiasco, Marston shows, the strength of the movement in the centers of national life waned precipitously. In the face of all these tumultuous developments, the hope for cultural victory declined. Late 19th century and early 20th century evangelicals continued to speak of victory, but increasingly the victory was personal and individual, not cultural. Keeping the flame alive. Eschatological optimism never died out completely. In fact, we can trace a clear line from the late 19th century postmillennialist to the present day. B.B. Warfield, who taught at Princeton until his death in 1921, was a postmillennialist. The founder of Westminster Theological Seminary, J. Gresham Machen, studied at Princeton under Warfield. Westminster was founded in 1929, and Machen taught there until his death in 1937. John Murray, professor of systematic theology at Westminster from 1930 to 1966, was, at least late in his life, something of a postmillennialist. Outside of the immediate Westminster community, there were also a few postmillennial writers. Roderick Campbell's Israel and the New Covenant was published in 1954, and the introduction by Westminster Seminary Professor O. T. Alice made clear his own postmillennial convictions. Lorraine Bettner studied at Princeton in the late 1920s, and his postmillennial book, The Reformed Doctrine of Predestination, was published in 1932, while his more extended postmillennial study, The Millennium, was first published in 1957. Westminster and Princeton graduate J. Marcellus Kick, a member of the editorial staff for Christianity Today, delivered his postmillennial lectures on Matthew 24 and Revelation 20 at Westminster Seminary in 1961. Kick dedicated one of his books to Roderick Campbell, thus the postmillennialism of Princeton theology was maintained at Westminster and elsewhere, though admittedly as a minority position. A resurgence of postmillennialism seems to be traceable to the influence of Ian Murray and the Banner of Truth Trust in Great Britain and of R.J. Rushdoony, whose first books were published in the late 1950s. Russ Junie has written two books specifically on eschatology, Thy Kingdom Come, 1970, and God's Plan for Victory, 1977, and one issue of The Journal of Christian Reconstruction was devoted to the millennium. Since then, the number of post-millennial writers has grown rapidly. The most prominent is David Chilton, who has written three major works on eschatology, Paradise Restored, 1985, The Days of Vengeance, 1987, and The Great Tribulation, 1987. Rush Dooney's and Chilton's works have sparked a renewal of optimism among many pastors and teachers, and even some seminary professors have re examined the biblical basis for postmillennialism. Conclusion. We have seen that the major view of American Christianity in the 19th century was that the kingdom of God would progressively triumph on earth. This hope was shattered in the early 20th century by a series of theological and social movements that splintered the kingdom theology that had already been weakened by revivalism, nationalism, secularism, and sentimentalism. The long-range optimism of Reconstructionists, therefore, is no recent development in this country. Instead, it is the pessimistic view of the future that is a relative newcomer on the American theological scene.